As I'm sure many of you have been doing over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading a, a lot of commentary, I've been kind of thinking a lot about talking a lot about some of the craziness going on in our country right now, specifically referring to the moral revolution that we seem to be witnessing that's taking place at mock speed. And of course, there's a whole lot that has led up to where we are, that's the way history works, but it seems we've reached a point now in our society where our society, at least a portion of it, our government seems to want to make a clean break from God's moral law, at least in the issue of marriage, which leads to a whole host of other issues, and is now actually openly celebrating sin. And so, to those of us who hold a a biblical view of marriage, this can be kind of scary, it can be confusing, it can be frustrating, it could be angering, it could cause us fear, it could lead to a whole host of different reactions, some of which might be good and some maybe not. And while there's a whole lot to say on this issue, and certainly what I'm saying this morning isn't anywhere near all there is to say on this issue, I think when we're confronted with these things, it's always good for us to go back to Scripture and see what Scripture has to say to these issues. Because we are far from the only Christians in history who have been hated for standing firm in the truth that God has given us. This might be new for us, but it is not new for the church. The world has hated the church and the truth it stands for from day one. So my intention this morning isn't just to simply offer a commentary on this subject. Pastor Kevin did that a couple of weeks ago. But rather, I really want to use this this morning as a paradigm for us because There have been, there are, and there will be continue to be multiple things that will be confronting us as a church that can have a tendency to shake us up. So I think we need to be prepared how we're going to respond to this biblically. So considering this, we are going to turn to the Bible's history book this morning, the book of Acts, and look at least in one case how the first Christians dealt with a a similar issue, I, I hope, which can be helpful. One place for us to consider is what happened in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, if you want to find your way there. Acts 19 is where Paul's on his third missionary journey. He says in Acts 20, 31, he remained in Ephesus for almost three years. That's the longest he'd been at any one stop up to this point by far. And what we're going to be reading this morning actually takes place at the end of Paul's three year stay in Ephesus. So let's read, excuse me, Acts 19, we're going to begin in verse 23. And about this time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only this, there's danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. So it might be helpful to kind of set up what's going on here, understanding a bit what was taking place in Ephesus at the time. Ephesus was in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. 
And at the time, Ephesus was a major commercial center in the region. And the major reason for this was the famous temple of Artemis that was there. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, and the temple of Artemis at Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was huge. It was 200 by 400 feet. It was a a major tourist attraction. People would literally come from all over the place to see it, and this had a great impact on the local economy because, as with major tourist destinations today, a tourist industry sort of had, had formed up around the temple to sell things to visitors, food, lodging, trinkets, and so on. And so those tourist sales combined with the temples serving as a treasury, a bank for merchants and kings and cities who would deposit their wealth there so it would be protected by the goddess, all of this combined to make Ephesus a major commercial center. But of course, the danger was that their economy was 100% based on one thing, people's belief in the worship of the goddess Artemis. So if that was impacted in any way, their local, local economy was going to be greatly impacted. So as we, as we look at this event that, that unfolds today, I, I just want to focus on three main points in this narrative that are going to kind of guide us through, I hope help guide us through what we might be facing today. And we begin with the first here, the first point, and that is the statement that some people in Ephesus became disturbed by the way. I love how verse 23 says it, at least in the, the NASB, uh, NASB, which I'm reading, the ESV has it similarly. It says, And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. The New King James says, A great commotion. So what was it that caused this disturbance, this commotion concerning the way? Well, there were two main things. The first is, I think inherent in the Spirit's verbiage, writing through Luke, referring to Christianity as the way, a phrase we only find in the book of Acts. And it's such an awesome phrase because it's anchored in the essential truth that Jesus Christ proclaimed about himself in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is very common today to hear people Defer, uh, refer derisively to Christianity, kind of one of the charges thrown at us, is that we're exclusivist, that is considered unbearably intolerant in our society today. Because that's such a common charge, I think we need to make sure that we're clear on this as we strive to remain in and, and defend the truth of Christ. And it's especially important today because not only does that claim of exclusivity upset those in the world, believe it or not, there are some prominent voices in the church today who also are kind of trying to take that essential truth that salvation is only found through Christ alone on. There are many in the church who are uncomfortable with that and and instead are saying, well, actually, Christianity, we've kind of gotten it wrong. Christianity is inclusivist. And what they mean by that is, okay, yeah, we admit that salvation is only found through Christ, but they say they're devout people of many different faiths, that when they die, they will find out in their religious sincerity they were actually worshiping the one true God, Jesus Christ, and they'll be saved. Unbeknownst to them, they were worshiping Jesus Christ all along. So in case you, you come across that term, inclusivist, used in a, a technical sense, and in some circles it's used quite a bit, that's what they're referring to. So just to make sure that, that we're clear, both to those in the world and in the church, I'm just going to say point blank, Christianity is absolutely exclusivist. Now, it's inclusivist in the sense that Christ's work on the cross, the gospel, is offered to everyone. 
As it says in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good and acceptable on the side of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But it's exclusivist in that not everyone will be saved because many will, re- will die rejecting God's plan of salvation through the gospel of Christ even as they sincerely worship false gods. As Christ said in Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. It's really not us who are making exclusivist statements. Christ made some of the most exclusivist statements ever, like I just quoted. It's just our job to firmly and boldly proclaim his truth. But that, like I said right there, is one of the major intolerances of our world today. Christianity's insistence that all roads don't lead to heaven. That, that pious people following other religions, or maybe people following no religion, but relying on their good to outweigh their bad, that they're not going to make it. That idea is repulsive to our relativistic, postmodern, what seems to be an increasingly post-Christian society we're living in, which seems to be tolerant of just about everything but those they view as intolerant, such as exclusivist Christians. But this isn't new. That's one of the neat things about looking at Scripture, is we find out this is actually pretty old. People being offended by Christianity's claim that Jesus Christ is the only way. People were offended and angered by it when Christ said it. They were offended and angered by it. When Paul said it, and they will be when we say it at all. But I think it's a good reminder for us to to realize this isn't some sort of unique situation we're dealing with. People have always been intolerant of God's proclamation that we are all, every single one of us, sinners worthy of death. And the only way to life is by repenting of our sin and turning to our Lord and Savior, the only way, Jesus Christ The offense of the gospel to fallen sinners is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The same truth that saves is the same truth that offends. The truth of the way always has and always will cause no small disturbance in this world. The second reason there was no small disturbance concerning the way was because there was a recession in Ephesus as these idols were being replaced by the one true God. There was a man in Ephesus, as we read, named Demetrius, who was one of the local business owners. He was profiting from all the visitors coming to the temple of Artemis. He was making silver trinkets, silver shrines of Artemis, so that people could purchase them and take them home with them. And this guy's business was being hurt, because as the gospel was going forth from Ephesus throughout Asia Minor, people everywhere were turning from worshiping the false goddess of Artemis and instead worshiping the one true God. So this business owner, Demetrius, said someone asked to pay and he got together some local business owners and began to come against the way which was causing the souring of the economy. He gathered them together, reminded, reminded them their prosperity depended on the worship of the false goddess Artemis, said their entire livelihoods were in danger, that Artemis was uh, being regarded as worthless. He said she's going to be dethroned from her magnificence. In other words, people were being saved, and they were abandoning the false goddess, and the local businessmen's pocketbooks were suffering as a result. So those were the two reasons for the disturbance in Ephesus. Anger at the exclusivity of the way and the concern of personal fortune or economic economic loss. But it's realizing how this happened that I think is of extreme importance. How exactly 
this disturbance concerning the way occurred. And this pagan man, Demetrius, actually reminds us of how it happened in verse 26 when he says, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. What an amazing statement. And in that statement, we're reminded of two things that I want to point out about how this disturbance concerning the way took place. First, Demetrius blamed one man. Paul. He didn't say these Christians or the church. He specifically mentioned Paul. Demetrius accused one man of upsetting all of Asia Minor. Do you think unless the church organization creates a a program or a team or a ministry that nothing can get done? If so, listen to this unsaved man saying that one man did all this. Now, of course, there's tremendous value in church-wide initiatives and ministries, but Don't get caught up in the idea that in order for the gospel to go forth, it has to be done as an official part of an official church ministry. It doesn't. It takes one person full of the Spirit and the Word who's willing to boldly go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. One person. The history of the church is littered with people like that. And of course, we see that with Paul here, as Demetrius says. And how did Paul become the one to be blamed for this? Excuse me. The answer is the second thing I want to point out and how this disturbance concerning the way happened. And that is it's simply by Paul's regularly, diligently preaching and teaching the word of God. We didn't read this, but earlier in the chapter, in verse 9, it gives us this detail. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he, Paul, withdrew from them. And took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So as Paul faithfully daily taught for two years, people were saved and matured. And then verse 20 says, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing, so much so that this enemy of the way, Demetrius, plainly stated the gospel had noticeably, profoundly taken effect in almost all of Asia Minor. What an amazing statement. And I believe the church finds a a powerful reminder for us in this. I think it might be a reminder some of us need now. This amazing work of the gospel didn't take place because Christians got together and protested the temple of Artemis. It didn't happen because they established boycotts of all the local businesses supporting it. It didn't happen because they got a a political action committee together. They didn't do that. Instead, one man committed himself to running himself ragged by teaching the word daily. And as the Spirit worked through the word faithfully taught, it transformed people who then went out and the Spirit's work was accomplished through their preaching of the word, and the entire region of Asia Minor was mightily impacted. I think so often we as Christians, and I'm sure most of us have been guilty of this at one point or another, I know I have, we can respond to the evils of the world in really what amounts to unhelpful ways. We as Christians, we can 
get upset when a, a business supports a gay initiative or something. And our response is, is to boycott this business. Or we get upset at all the filth that comes out of Hollywood. And our answer is to protest the film industry. Or like in the 70s and 80s with the religious right, we form a political movement to turn America back to biblical morality through political force. But all those things, they might make us feel good. And I believe they're done with the best of intentions. I don't impugn anybody's intentions. But I think we'd be wise to ask ourselves, what exactly has that accomplished? And excuse me, history says it's actually accomplished very little. Actually, what it seems to do is cause the world to laugh at us more and then have more reason in their eyes to label us as dumb, intolerant, judgmental idiots. So here's my question for the church. I don't mean this church. I just mean the church in general. It can be a hard question. Please know I'm not, not putting anybody down with this. I, I, I just want us to honestly reflect on this. Why are we so shocked when pagans act like pagans? And please don't mishear me. We, we should mourn. As Pastor Kevin said a couple of weeks ago, what's taking place in our country. It's devastating to watch our country just bask in its sin. But I just want to challenge maybe some of our responses and ask, why are we so shocked? Of course, a business run by unsaved people is going to support same-sex marriage. Of course, Hollywood studios run by people who love their sins more than the light are going to make disgustingly immoral movies. Why is that shocking? If we understand what scripture says about the world, and maybe some of us are are learning that includes our country, maybe we thought we had a little bit of a reprieve and we're finding out that's not the case. The correct biblical response to pagans acting like pagans is found right in these verses. And it's not boycotting and protesting. Christ didn't call us to boycott and protest the things of the world. Those who are dead in sin are unregenerate and governed by Satan. Scripture says they are children of disobedience. Satan has blinded their eyes. Of course they're going to act that way. And by the way, when I use the, the word pagan, I'm not trying to be derogatory in any respect. The whole point is that I desperately desire these people to be saved. We were pagans before we were saved. Just using it in its historical sense of the unsaved. Our response to unsaved people acting like unsaved people shouldn't be to get upset and protest or to hole up in Christian ghettos kind of trying to insulate ourselves from the world or to try and politically reform unregenerate hearts or think if we can just get our guy back in the White House, then we can right this ship and everything will be okay again. And please don't, again, please do not think I'm saying something I'm not. Don't think For a second, I'm saying that we shouldn't use the political power we have. Absolutely. That's an amazing gift we have that these Christians in the first century Rome didn't have. We should exercise exercise every political power we have. Absolutely. We should infiltrate Hollywood and make great movies. We should take advantage of the freedoms we still have in this country. We definitely shouldn't just say, say la vie. Like you said, we knew it was going to happen. So, uh, you know, I don't know. And most certainly... We shouldn't jump ship and join the world and endorse what they're doing, like seems we're seeing more Christians and churches do. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is that isn't our ultimate hope or aim. Our primary response, maybe not our only response, but our primary response 
should be to preach the word because it is only, and let me reemphasize that, it is only through the word, the gospel preached, that people will be saved. We have not been called to change society. We've been called to something far greater. We've been called to raise people from death into life by preaching the word of Christ and making disciples through the word of Christ. And by the way, if you want to see society changed, that's how it happens. Like we see here in Ephesus, as long as people are not born again, they will act like pagans. We should not be surprised by that. It doesn't seem the Christians in Ephesus were. So instead of protesting false idols, they preached the word, and as a result, people all over the place gave up their idols. Not because someone came and told them, you're evil for having those, but because their spirit, their hearts have been regenerated by the spirit and the word. And as a result, they ran from their false idols to the one true God. That's what happens when we do what we're called to and we rely on the word rather than just being against the world. Let's not just be against the things of the world. And again, let me say, we stand against the sin in this world. Absolutely. But our job doesn't end there. Unregenerate people are never going to respond to our just being against the idols that they clutch to like their life depends on it. They should know that that we don't take part in them, that we don't endorse them, that we order our lives in a very different way. But they should also know that we're not just religious people who are against the impure things of the world, but that we're dirty sinners who have been saved from our sin and idols through Christ the only way. Let's not just be against the things of the world, but let's save the world by being matured in the word and then going out and fulfilling our commissioning to preach the gospel and make disciples just as we see happened in Asia Minor. Picking up in verse 28. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from, arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, this disturbance concerning the way, like we just looked at, began by Demetrius gathering his fellow business owners and blaming Paul's preaching for the economic hit. But it quickly escalated into an all-out riot. Demetrius' speech resulted in his hearers being filled with rage, and they all headed to the 24,000-seat amphitheater at the time, angrily yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And this procession incited a mob as the city was filled with confusion. And this angry mob grabbed two of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, along the way. Seemingly, well, at least they're Christians. We can make them pay for this. And then I love what happens next. Paul sees what's going on. 
And his immediate response was to head straight into this angry, out-of-control mob. Just picture that. There's this angry mob of thousands of people who are after you. Your name has been specifically named, and they, and they want to get their revenge. And then your answer is just to go straight into that melee. Paul is so bold. I love it. But despite his response, he was restrained by both other believers and the Asiarchs. Interestingly, who were members of the wealthiest family of Asia, they actually served Rome's interest by promoting the cult of the Roman emperor. I think it's interesting that Paul apparently had befriended some of them. So this group convinced Paul would not be smart to enter the fray, and he wisely listened. But by now, the mob was in fever pitch, and at this point, some Jews put a man named Alexander forward. Apparently, he was going to try and convince them, hey, those, those Christians, they're not us. We have nothing to do with them. But there was rampant anti-Semitism in the empire at the time, and once they saw he was a Jew, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. So in this, this cult-like trance, they just shouted him down by saying, great is Artemis for two hours. This is such an accurate description of mob psychology. Mobs are not the place to be. They're, they're emotional, they're nonsensical, and they're usually very dangerous. And it cracks me up. True to mob psychology, in verse 32, it says, So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority didn't even know for what cause they'd come together. So there was this confusion as to what the exact reason for all this anger was, who was to blame, but it seems that everyone was united in this threat to Artemis as they rallied together in their unified worship of the false goddess Artemis against the one true God. And that's the second major point in our text today. People rioting against God so they can hold on to their false idols. This is a small example, admittedly, but... <clears throat> excuse me. It reminds me of an experience I had a couple of years ago. Uh, a few years back, I used to meet with a friend uh, at the Westcliff Starbucks in, in Newport. We'd just grab a coffee and kind of go sit outside at some of the tables. And we'd, go, we'd meet for work, so we were in our business attire, and we were just studying the Bible and praying, kind of discipling and minding our own business. And, and as usual, one Thursday morning, we were doing that, minding our own business. And, and this guy, I don't know, probably in his 30s, really kind of just a cool kind of typical-looking Newport Beach guy. Uh, he was walking by, and he just stopped at our table. He, he didn't say hi. He made no introduction whatsoever. And in this kind of monotone voice, he just pointed down our Bibles and says, you know, was, the, the Bible was just totally made up by scholars who worked on it as directed by King James in the early 17th century. I mean, you can go look at the authorized version and, and all its errors. It's just a, it's a complete and total fabrication. And so I was a little kind of taken off guard by the reaction, but what he said was just so easily refutable. So I was starting to kind of invite him and say, hey, why don't you sit down and we can talk through some of this stuff. But before I could even get a word out, he started backing up, like, you know, facing us, but backing up. And now he wasn't speaking monotone anymore. He just started yelling, the Bible's caused more evil, more wars, more suffering than any other book in history. It's evil. And he just bailed. It's gone. See, that guy, he didn't want to hear the truth. He had no interest whatsoever in just kind of working through what he believed actually had any validity or not. All he wanted to do was rage against God. 
There was obviously an internal riot against him. God was threatening his idols. He saw an opportunity to let out his anger against God on us, and he took it. That's basically what's going on here in Ephesus. It's what's going on in people's lives all around us. I think it's part of what we're seeing going on on a macro level in our country right now. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the way, will cause riots. Some will be saved. Others will openly, defiantly rebel against the God who threatens to take away their idols of self, money, career, health, sexual identity, or any of the other idols that they love more than the one true God of the universe. Our living to proclaim the way may not always lead to a citywide riot, but it will often cause an internal riot in others that will manifest itself by their angrily coming against us and the gospel that we proclaim. Verse 35. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have any complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affairs, since there's no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So after two hours of this mob chanting and enraging, the riot was finally pacified by the, the town clerk, essentially the CEO of the city. And he, he addressed the crowd, and in his address we find the third point in our study of this disturbance concerning the way. And that is the riot was calmed by creating an illusion that all was well. The main point of the town clerk's argument was, Everyone knows Ephesus is the guardian of Artemis whose image fell down from heaven. We can rest secured in that undeniable truth. So just calm down. You guys are making a scene out of nothing. And the people were pacified. And sadly, so many are today in the same way. I think we see this both, again, on an individual level and on a macro level. On an individual level, for example, one of the greatest threats to people's idols, to people living however they want, is death. Death hits everyone. There's a 100% death rate. Nobody can escape it. And despite what people say, people aren't really exactly sure what happens after. I think that's probably why so many people today in our society are so uncomfortable with this subject. In ages past, or even in other cultures today, death was all around you. Disease was all around you. There was no medicine. Your life was short and hard. You couldn't escape death. But in our society, people go to extreme lengths almost to kind of pretend death isn't really there. We're obsessed with living as long as possible. We go to extreme measures to live as long as possible. 
I think it's maybe one of the reasons why people are so obsessed with health and fitness in our society in a way that I don't think any other society has been in history. We think we have far more control than we actually do to ward off death. You know, there are literally groups of scientists who have raised millions of dollars of private funds to find the cure for death. People are cryogenically freezing their bodies so that when they find this cure, they can be brought back to life. Besides the the terrible ramifications of that, I mean, who in the world wants to live in this world forever? I, I don't. But, but the point is, many of the unsaved, they just don't want to think about death because it forces them to confront this one true God and his judgment like nothing else does. So rather than being confronted with all of that, all that sort of God and judgment stuff those Christians are always talking about or being reminded of what they were subjected to when they were forced to go to Sunday school as a kid, they just rather believe in whatever creates the illusion that all is well. And like I said, people go to extreme measures to do that. The Ephesians believed an image of the goddess of Artemis had fallen from the sky, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was a true goddess. And we might kind of chuckle at that, but are people so different today? What's the belief that so many people have? I love those Ray Comfort videos. 100% of him going around asking people, do you think you're a good person? Are you going to go to heaven? 100% of people say, yes, I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven if that exists. What's that based on? Nothing more than that's what they want to be true. That's, they're far more comfortable with that than the idea that Jesus demands a perfect moral standard and that nobody who, anybody who does not hold that perfect moral standard will go to hell unless Christ's righteousness is imputed unto him. Or maybe they just deny any existence at all beyond this life. There's no God, there's no us. We evolve to get here, and then when it's done, it's done. We don't go anywhere. What's that based on? Well, at the very least, it's based on very, very questionable science that everything came from nothing. At the very least, there should be some honest questioning to the scientific verify, ver, ver, excuse me, if that could be scientifically true. That was kind of a porky pig. Sorry about that. Verify, verify if it's true. <clears throat> anyway, why do people believe in that despite hiding behind all this academic reason and logic? Ultimately, it's because they want to pacify themselves. They want, that's what they want to be true. They're much more comfortable with that. And so they, they will just stay there and they will do their best to shut down anybody who challenges that. We also see the unsaved creating the illusion all as well on a macro level. Forgive me for continuing to refer to this subject, but it's one of the more important subjects facing us today. When the Supreme Court issued its decision to legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states, Our president said, although there's still work to do, today our union is a little more perfect. And we saw people and and businesses and even many churches, the White House itself, clamoring to fly rainbow flags and declare love wins. You see, all is well. Everything's good. Forget about what some ancient book says or some so-called God has to say on this subject. We're an advanced people who know better. And we celebrate it. We revel in it. And sadly, rather than running to the truth of God and his redemptive plan through Christ that he has made available to us, 
Many will riot against it and will pacify themselves by denying the truth and believe whatever lie they've adopted to create the illusion that all is well and thus avoid the uncomfortable truth of what happens when this life is over and the cure for death hasn't been discovered. Or or we find out that whatever our hearts say is right or whatever the Supreme Court justices declare is right, it turns out that's not the final standard or judgment. And of course, that's where we come in. Because we have the cure for death. We have the eternal truth that frees us from the bondage of sin and self, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we have been called and commissioned to proclaim. And as we live out and proclaim the gospel, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus Christ, we too should be causing no small disturbance in the world. It's a large part of how we should be reacting to what is taking place now. But again, what what kind of disturbance we're causing is so important. Read the town clerk's words again. He said the Christians weren't robbers of temples. They weren't blasphemers of our goddess. He told them the courts were open if they had any legitimate charges against them. And they didn't. And I think that says so much about the Christians at Ephesus like we talked about earlier. This pagan town clerk declared the Christians were not the ones rioting and causing discord. They hadn't protested the government. They hadn't boycotted businesses. Instead, they committed themselves to wholeheartedly preaching and maturing in the word. And then as the word had its work, the world protested and rioted against them. That's all the unregenerate world ultimately has in the face of God's truth to rage against and protest against God. But that's not what we have to rely on. We have something far greater. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We have the spirit of the living God inside of us. And we have the life-giving word that we have been sent out to proclaim that raises people from death into eternal life as lives are changed eternally. And it's not just by our being against the things of the world And again, I just want to offer this caveat. We are being confronted with multiple complicated issues on multiple fronts. There's a lot to work through, absolutely. But there is one response in all of that that is completely uncomplicated. We stand firm in the truth of God's word, no matter the cost. And we're learning there may very likely be a cost. But we don't stop there. We continue by the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust God to save people, people we would never imagine would have ever been saved as they surrender their lives to the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even if we do that and there's no fruit except for a riot against us, we still do it because that's what we have been called to do. I pray this church causes a riotous disturbance all around us. Not a a disturbance we've created because we're relying on our own power, but a disturbance the Holy Spirit has created because the word of the Lord and the gospel of of Jesus Christ just sounds so strongly through us. So let's remain completely committed to the faithful teaching of God's word in this church as we're matured in it and then sent out to teach it to others as we live out the commissioning of our king, the king of the universe, so that his word will cause no small disturbance as people hear and see in us the way, the only way, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
our God, you are great beyond description. And we are so thankful for their constant reminder that we haven't been saved because somehow we're wonderful, good people, but we are formerly hostile, rebellious sinners that you have saved through the power of your grace. And we are so grateful for that, and I just pray that we would live in such a way so full of the joy of that truth that we would just be compelled to go out and proclaim your truth as you have called every single one of us to do. Even though it it can be scary and intimidating, we remember that we don't do this under our own power, but full of your spirit and word, we live out your truth, and we proclaim your truth to this world who so desperately needs us. Thank you for sending us on this wonderful, eternal mission. And we trust you to do this work through us. Amen.